Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. And my intention, my purpose, and my hope was that Sidney would maybe get a little more attention for some of his contributions, which again were quite significant. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor David Otterson discussing the philosophies of Algernon Sidney. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by Rhode Island Publication Society, publishers of the new book, Revolutionary War Defenses of Rhode Island by John K. Robertson. Available now wherever books are sold. Visit their site, ripublications.org, today. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor David Otterson, and he'll be discussing how the writings of English philosopher and politician Algernon Sidney affected the American Revolutionary Era. You know, one of the things we tend to lose sight on is just how British, or maybe now English in this example, um, the ideological and philosophical origins of the American Revolution were. Because many of the great Enlightenment era writings uh, that inspired men like James Madison and Thomas Jefferson came from earlier English thinkers. If you're not familiar with Algernon Sidney, you will be after this interview. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with David Otterson. David Otterson, thank you for joining us. I appreciate the invitation, and I am delighted to be here. Tell us about your background. Sure. I uh, was originally from northern New Jersey, and the only reason I mention that is because that afforded me the opportunity at a very young age to see the original Broadway production of 1776, which was a marvelous experience, and it really uh, inspired in me a lifelong uh, love of history and the revolutionary era in in particular. Uh, But for the most part, I grew up in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., in Maryland, went to school and grew up there, then on to the University of Maryland, where I studied uh, government, economics, and philosophy, then had a business career, and still do, as a federal contractor, all the while, again, maintaining an active interest in history in the revolutionary era and again particular what first drew your interest into this topic well um it wasn't i know anything epiphanic it was all very gradual and i noted uh, or became familiar with sydney originally in an undergraduate political ideology class and again we studied hobbes and locke and rousseau and machiavelli and montesquieu and really sydney was at the margins and I specifically noticed that Sydney, compared to Locke, received significantly less attention. And I thought that was curious. In fact, in the class I just mentioned, one of the textbooks was, in fact, Locke's two treatises. And again, Sydney was at the margin and received significantly less attention. I did notice that that is somewhat of a pattern in the American revolutionary literature, and at large, that is. And I see that, and I sense that, and I thought that it might be worthwhile to write something on Sydney. And, and in fact, when I went to look at the JIR website to confirm that this isn't ground or this is ground that hasn't been covered before, 
I uh, very was curious to see the same sort of paradigm existed and that Locke once again received the lion's share of attention, Sydney very little. And so I thought it might be worthwhile to write the article and share it with the JAR community. Who was Algernon Sidney? Algernon uh, Sidney was a, an important historic figure, even independent of his authorship of the discourses. Uh, Sidney was born into an aristocratic family. Both his mother and father had aristocratic lineage. His father, in fact, was a diplomat, served as ambassador to both Sweden and France, where uh, Sidney uh, accompanied him. He later served with distinction, in fact, during the First English Civil War, he was wounded at the Battle of Marston Moor. Shortly after that, he, he did achieve the rank of colonel, although he was compelled to retire owing to his injuries and his wounds. Shortly after, he was elected to the House of Commons in the Parliament, where once again, he found himself um, in a position to have a significant impact. He was one of, for example, the members of the 59-man committee, which both tried and sentenced and then ultimately executed Charles I. At the time, Sidney actually opposed that. Later, he seemed to reverse himself a full 180 degrees and supported that or made statements very much in support of the efforts of that committee and then the ultimate execution of, of Charles I. He later served uh, himself as a diplomat and negotiator, or helped negotiate, I should say, the peace between Denmark and Sweden during their hostilities uh, during, uh, in 1660. He was very much a contentious and quarrelsome figure, and he undoubtedly um, earned enemies, and that forced him to exile to uh, exile himself for about a lengthy time of about 17 years in which he was traveling between Sweden and Denmark and Italy, after which he returned, uh, he returned to England. He was at, implicated in the early 1680s, 1682, 1683, in what was known as the Rye House Plot, which was a plot to assassinate Charles II. It is very improbable that Sidney, in fact, was actually involved in the plot, but his anti-monarch sentiments were quite well known. He was arrested in connection with that plot in June. He was tried in uh, November and executed in uh, December, December 7th to be particular, of 1683. So he was executed at age 60, just shy of his 61st birthday. Talk about discourses. Sure. Discourses, there's much to talk about uh, when discussing discourses. I think the most important thing to remember and to be aware of is the fact that this was a, a tome, a text that was written in direct response to another treatise, and that was Sir Robert Filmer's Patriarcha. And Filmer advocated very strenuously, in fact, the divine right of kings and, absolute, and, a, and a doctrine of absolute monarchy. This was anathema absolute anathema to Sidney. And so his reply was, uh, his, his desire, I should say, to reply to and discredit Filmer was what motivated him to write the book. In fact, the book opens, uh, Discourses does, on the very first page by announcing he has just read Filmer's book and he's going to consider the doctrines advocated and advanced by Filmer. So he does that. The other thing to remember, I think, that's most, most important is that this is a severe attack on the notion of absolute monarchy. Um, one of the, the, the more important elements is that at one point, Sidney argues that people who are wickedly and barbarously oppressed, and I'm paraphrasing, by a tyrant may destroy him and his tyranny without giving offense to any king. Now, that's a distinction that any Whig or classical Republican would easily and effortlessly make 
However, it's a distinction that a monarchist would be absolutely horrified to make, would resist intensely. And so what, what we have is Sidney very aggressively undermining the monarchy. That's just one way. He, he also made it very clear that a monarch has no unique and special hereditary gifts of intellect or of virtue or of honor than any other. And he even compared them to a peasant or judgment or intellect. And he even compared the, 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 the monarch to a peasant in his overall aptitude and ability. So the important thing to take away is this was a very intense, very direct, very severe attack on the divine right of kings. Historian uh, John Phillips Kenyon, in fact, made the point that had Filmer not written Patriarcha, it is very improbable that um, Sidney would have ever written the discourses. How did discourses influence the founding generation here in America? Yeah, you know, this is a question that I welcome. I'm glad you asked it. It's important. And in fact, I spent considerable time uh, addressing the same point in, uh, in the article itself. Sydney's uh, discourses had an enormous influence on the founding generation. And forgive me for repeating, but somehow, some way, Locke and two treatises survived with much more attention and notoriety than Sydney's discourses. And that's, again, one of the reasons. But that I write that I wrote the article, but when we come back to the influence he had on the founders, we see a, a very significant influence on Jefferson and the Declaration. We know and we see the enormous respect that both um, Adams and Franklin had. We know that there are a host of others, including James Otis, Arthur Lee, Josiah Quincy Jr., who had an equal um, respect and admiration for his work. Stephen Hopkins, I think I mentioned in the article as well. So there were a significant number of founders and framers who were very much influenced, very, very well read in, in the discourses, understood it implicitly, understood it thoroughly, communicated his ideas in much of their own literature. And again, when I refer back to Jefferson and Franklin and Adams and Hopkins, all of whom had works in addition to the Declaration. We have the Novanglis essays and uh, Hopkins, of course, the rights of the colonies examined. All of these uh, were instrumental, of course, in the Declaration advancing the cause, and they were all very significantly, profoundly influenced by the discourses. You write about something called natural equality. Could you talk about that? Yeah, this, is, this too is an excellent question. This was a recurring theme. Uh, many of the ideas and doctrines that, uh, for example, Jefferson advanced in the Declaration, and again, I return to the point that I made, this, or I made these points in the, um, in the article itself, but natural equality for Sydney was significant and important for this reason. And, and by the way, when we talk about natural equality, we have to realize there's a, there's a functional relationship between consent and equality, and, I, and I'll talk about uh, that later as well. But in terms of natural equality, He's not, of course, talking about the idea that everyone has the same aptitude or same abilities or same skill set. What he's talking about is natural equality as the foundation for the compact theory for uh, the establishment of civil society. Civil society. Under uh, the state of nature, individuals were only governed, governed, limited, and restrained by their own instincts, by their own ethical criteria, by their own personal morality. When that was insufficient uh, to protect, for example, or when it was found that it was insufficient to protect their lives, the lives of their families, their property, much of that 
liberty was sacrificed in the interest of forming a civil society with legal institutions and protection. So as Jefferson described the idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, life and liberty flowed from the idea of equality because everyone in a state of nature held that equality, that is the equality of right, which they compromised and sacrificed to some limited degree in order to establish um, a civil society. So that's the importance of natural equality in, in Sydney's terms. What does Sydney say about unalienable rights? For, for Sydney, uh, it's important to remember and to emphasize, to stress that, and this may be sensitive in today's environment, so we have to re- remove it from a contemporary context and try to consider it in the context of a 17th century political theorist. But Sydney was very much of the opinion that the rights that we possess, these inalienable rights, like Jefferson wrote, are life and liberty. And what, again, may be sensitive is that under Sydney's interpretation, these rights, these inalienable rights, were undoubtedly a gift from God. Uh, they were God-given. And there's language throughout the discourses emphasizing that fact, and some of which, of course, I included in, in the article itself. And it's curious to me because the way the discourses are organized, he writes by chapter and then literally says chapters three, section something, chapter three, section 22, section 24, whatever the case might be. One of the sections, again, as I referenced in the article, is specifically entitled The Liberty of the People is a Gift from God. So he doesn't hide from this issue. And again, you have to put this in the context of a 17th century political theorist not in contemporary terms. But again, I emphasize the point is that for Sydney, the unalienable rights were a direct gift from God and could be only revoked or abrogated by God. Sydney will write about uh, consent of the governed in his, in his writings. What does he say about that? Uh, once again, interesting question. And if you remember when I talked in terms of we discussed uh, his interpretation of equality, I had mentioned that there's a uh, connection between, a very clear and direct connection between consent and inequality. And the reason for that is that consent flows from equality. Uh, In the state of nature, as I mentioned during the equality discussion, um, everyone has the same right. Now, everyone will give up those rights or some of those rights on common terms to enter into a society by mutual consent. So Sidney was very clear on this, very perspicuous, and his idea was that government itself, all civil institutions, all legal institutions, government itself, arises from consent. There's functional equality, and Sidney, for example, described it something uh, sometimes in terms of universal rights conferred upon by, again, God and nature. Governments arise from the consent of men according to their own inclinations. Um, no man is obliged to enter into contract against his will. So these are some of the ways he addresses the idea of consent. And forgive me for the repetition, but the relationship between equality and consent is very direct. The origin of civil society flows from the inefficiency and the inability to protect one's life and property in a state of nature uh, where everyone is equal and entering into society, everyone by consent agrees to give up some of that liberty in order to, to achieve some of those protections. How does Sydney feel about the idea of revolution? Revolution, uh, I mentioned in the article, was at the core of the Declaration, and it is likewise and similarly at the core of the discourses. This was um, 
undoubtedly the, the, the topic area that cost ultimately Sidney his life. He was very direct in his description of revolution, of the right to revolution, the fact that the uh, monarchy was very much vulnerable to abuses, to corruption, to incompetency. And all of this had, of course, a uh, deleterious effect on the population, on the civil institutions. And so as Jefferson articulated, uh, alter and abolish when it becomes uh, destructive of the end for which it was instituted, Sidney was the author of this, and Sidney maintained the same idealistic rights that the people, if they're abused, if government is corrupt, if government is incompetent, if it doesn't serve and meet the ends for which it was instituted, it is the right, again, of the people to, and, and Sidney used similar language, he said change or abolish um, rather than alter or abolish, but the point and the principle was the same. This, again, also was an appalling idea to monarchical absolutists, the idea that the divine right of kings was the doctrine upon which they proceeded, that the king could do no wrong, that he was not liable and subject to recall in any way. And Sidney went so far uh, to talk about the justification of tumults, rebellions, riots, all of this if government became abusive for the ends for which it was instituted and the people had the right, undoubted right, to reclaim their liberty, their God-given liberty, exercise revolution, and institute government, which pleased them. How does this article help us understand the revolutionary era better? Um, I, I think I, I mentioned uh, on more than one occasion throughout the discussion that Sydney does not uh, receive the sort of notoriety that Locke does. And my intention, my purpose, and my hope was that Sydney would maybe get a little more attention for some of his contributions, which again were quite significant. If we talk about the, the concepts of, of equality, of, of consent, of right to revolution, all of these things that figured so prominently in the Declaration, most people, when they discuss it, and they say, well, where did Jefferson himself get these ideas, automatically and inherently go directly to, to treatises. And forgive me for repeating, but Sidney's contribution is often per, at the periphery, sometimes marginalized. And what I hope to do is give a more complete understanding, a more thorough understanding on some of the ideological sources that the founders relied upon to effect the revolution. And more importantly, or equally importantly, to justify the revolution, if not against the British uh, monarchy and parliament, because they were not going to conceive at any point. But the existing international order would recognize some of the legitimacy found in the arguments that were advanced by the, the colonists and, of course, originally sourced in in Sydney's discourses. David Otterson, thanks again. I enjoyed being here and thank you for your help today. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long. <laughs>